Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, everybody. This is David, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. You can notice, obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, hey, guess what? I've got the headphones on today. Normally have the earbuds, but nope, I'm going with headphones. Just needed to get better audio here. Uh, we've been a little bit inconsistent with the audio. I apologize for that. Uh, I do have a wonderful um, Blue Yeti microphone. Um, I've redone my, my studio where I record the Safety Doc podcast. And the last time, um, the Blue Yeti has buttons on the front, buttons on the back knobs. And I did incidentally, accidentally, um, adjust the gain knob, and it went up a little bit. So the last one is a little bit loud, kind of like the Safety Doc is screaming at you. But you know the, the Safety Doc would never do that, okay? All right, you know that. You know that, right? Um, but, yeah, yeah. So I think we've got things kind of uh, adjusted now and, I'm using the headphones to get much better feedback, um, especially when I work on uh, some of the interviews, which will be coming up. So starting out, uh, appreciation going out to John Grant and The 405 Media, the405media.com out of Los Angeles for being the primary outlet, the primary talk outlet for the Safety Doc Podcast. It's been a wonderful relationship. Started out in an evening slot, uh, was moved up to a 1 o'clock p.m. Uh, PST time. Uh, that's been working great. Have a growing audience. I laugh a little bit because um, I have a my, – my Twitter following is, is really strong. So I'm, I'm, I'm gaining a number of Twitter followers every day specific to the show, and I appreciate that. Um, on YouTube, so I, I record the show. And I posted it on YouTube. There are some people who like to, to watch the Safety Doc. Um, and uh, it's also posted on SoundCloud. But most people, of course, listen to the, to the Safety Doc. That's the most convenient way. But um, on YouTube, I have my own personal channel. And what I do is I, I also teach college classes. So I will, will post weekly what I call fireside chats, more of a reflection of what has happened uh, that week in, in that specific class. I'm teaching a few classes right now. So when people go in and they subscribe, and I can tell, um, you know, it might, it, by, the, by the name of the sus subscriber or the organization that they really are intending to subscribe to the Safety Doc podcast, but then they end up just subscribing to me in general, so they, they have to kind of work their way over to the Safety Doc. Uh, it's very strange because, yes, my, my regular YouTube channel has a, has a pretty strong following, which continues to grow. The Safety Doc has two people that, that follow it. And then I have one channel, uh, Solitude Surfer, which I have never, ever posted a video to. It's completely blank. I've done nothing with it. I've just it's been a placeholder for like a year. And I have three people that follow that, okay? So three people follow a show which I've never posted anything to ever. Um, but I know that, you know, the Safety Doc is, is gaining in popularity. And uh, can certainly see that on, on Twitter, on SoundCloud, and definitely on, on the YouTube views. Um, but it's just funny because I think people come in and they type my name and, and, and they immediately kind of just go and, and subscribe under my name. And, um, and, and they don't kind of fish out where the, where the safety doc is. But, but they can work over to that because obviously when you bring up videos, it kind of cross-references and you can, you can see the safety doc ones. Uh, and I'm starting to get a pretty uh, popular following on the archived videos. I mean, they're all available. You can go to the405media.com or go to SoundCloud or actually YouTube, whatever. But um, and any any of the previous uh, shows that I've done, um, you can you can watch, download, listen to in the car. Um, getting more people who are downloading the shows too. So, just want to make you aware of that. Um, I did have one person um, email me who who really appreciate it downloaded a number of shows and listened to the archives and said, boy, I learned a lot about a safety and just different aspects of safety from your show. And um, I, I really appreciate it that I'm starting to get more feedback, too, from, from people. So if you have any comments, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, send me a, an email. You can find that if you go online at safety PhD and, and you can click into my website. 
um, you know, or, uh, you know, you can message me or, or whatever it might be, but, but I'm out there pretty easy to get a hold of. So, um, I want to also thank Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, one of uh, the leaders in online bullying and school safety reporting in the country. And Joe Bruzes, a few episodes ago, um, their CEO was on for an exclusive interview um, here on the 405 Media. And Joe was uh, working with a number of top educators on um, identifying the key safety issues uh, facing educators and educational leaders today, and then really an action plan on how to go about that, which boiled down to, to kind of two things. One is uh, embracing school connectedness or getting kids connected to kids and kids connected to schools, or else just get getting in the circle, the endless circle, the endless race, the race with no finish line of uh, contingency planning. You know, you can plan for this and this and this, or what about this and this and this, and, and you have to draw the line in the sand on that. And you said, actually, the group came to that, that realization pretty quick. But I know there's a lot of people out there who just get get um, get so tied to contingency planning that they, they, they can't work out of out of that mode. Um, that's where you end up with, here's my three-inch binder, volume one. Uh, here's my three-inch volume two, you know, volume three, volume four. And, and that just doesn't do anybody any good. So, um, and you can follow me on Twitter at SafetyPhD, at SafetyPhD. Uh, that following is increasing pretty rapidly. I appreciate any retweets. And if you message me directly, uh, I will respond to you. Um, if you do have an interest in the show or possibly being a guest on the show, let me know. Um, we cover a broad range of safety in this show. Now, it, school safety is a big part of what we do, but it's not all of what we do. Um, I will be interviewing uh, Casey Kramer. I just posted that tonight. And I've, I've talked to Casey. Uh, Casey um, played the position of fullback in the NFL from 2004 to 2008. Um, had a very successful college career in Dartmouth. And um, safety's gonna, Casey's going to talk about personal safety um, once, once you become an NFL player. Of course, we just wrapped up an exhilarating Super Bowl. Um, but just things that, that you know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think about. Um, and I, I remember <laughs> I, was, I was FaceTiming with, with Casey. Now, I'm not, I'm not a big Apple person. My stuff is all you know, kind of PC Android based, but I was, I was borrowing, um, a phone so I could FaceTime with him. And, uh, and he said it was kind of funny because one of the things, you know, once you get into the NFL is they have the, the protected parking lots for the players. And he said a number of players would pull in, you know, with their big SUVs and the windows tinted and everything. And he said they actually had little satellite dishes on top. So they could like, once you're inside the big screen TV, like in, in the, in the back of it and things like that. And, he said he would pull up like in his Toyota, you know, um, Camry, Camry, I think, or I, I don't know what it was, but it was six years old. And, uh, and they would kind of razz him about that a little bit. Uh, he's a real sensible guy. Um, actually, um, serves, I, I believe right now as the uh, team, uh, pastor for the Tennessee Titans. I'll have to double check on that, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, but really a, a down to earth, great guy. And he's, he came into the league and played with some really um, uh, players that that were very capturing of the headlines for I think some of their struggles with personal safety. Uh, now he's not going to mention names, and we're not going to get into those things, but I think he's going to be able to give some insight, which will just be interesting because for any of us at any time. Now we're not going to go to the NFL here, the old safety doc. It's just not it's it's not happening. Um, so I think I can still run the 40 in about six seconds. But uh, but what could happen, I mean, to any of us at any time, I mean, think of it, you could be in a position of, um, of inheritance, you know, which would make you, you know, more of a, of a public target, especially if it's something that's known or amongst family members, uh, you know, things like, you know, like lottery and, and just other things like that. I mean, they're not, they're not likely to happen, but even, you know, as you move up in a, in a, organization, um, you know, in your job or in some other organization, you become more high profile. It could just be something that you're involved in that happens that catches the eye of, of, of you know, the news and, and whatever. But, um, and not only you, but it could be your, your family or your relatives or, or just things that I'm going to cover in that, um, in that interview with Casey 
that I think you're going to be able to, to take away and apply at certain parts of your life. It might not be right now. Um, it might be, you know, months, might be years from now, but I think there are going to be points you're going to take from that. And, and then just from the curiosity standpoint of, of being able to, to listen to Casey share those, those experiences and, um, you know, because how many of us really, you know, have had the, the chance to have that kind of get real talk with an NFL, with an NFL player. So I, I really look forward to that. And um, I appreciate my FaceTime uh, with, with Casey. Uh, just just a wonderful, um, a wonderful person. And I he, he's excited to be on the show. So that's also exciting for me. Um, we do have uh, Dylan uh, Allman is going to be on the show and he is. Uh, immediately, once I posted that Dylan Allman was going to be on the show, I I think I had 700 Twitter impressions like in 60 seconds. So he is um, a young, um, up and coming, a political figure, and and this is a name you know in 10 years which everybody is going to know, if if it takes that long. I don't even know if it'll take that long, but um, sorry. I'm itching my nose for those of you, you know, if, you, if you're obviously listening to this, it means nothing, but for those of you who are watching, again, um, I, this is a basement studio office. It's very nice. I, I put a lot of, of money into renovating it. It's very modern, uh, but unfortunately, there's like zero humidity down here. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm being tested for like, you know, NASA to you contact me to put me on some space mission to a planet that has like no humidity or what it is. But, uh, but yeah, my skin is like dry. Like I'm afraid to like close my hand because, you know, skin's gone. But, uh, but yeah, it, it really gets dry down here in, in winter. So, um, so yeah, yeah, Dylan, and he's, he's really, uh, it, it's, it's invigorating and we're going to have a very, Healthy talk about the Patriot Act. Um, I stand typically for or with the Patriot Act. Now, not not you know, it, I, I don't step with every single component of the Patriot Act, and, and nor do I proclaim to know it inside and out. Uh, but from a safety sharing information across agencies, I think it's taken away a lot of the, the red tape, which previously got held up by judges uh, ordering writs and things like that. Um, and I'm not sure that, um, you know, Dylan is, is as much, um, his viewpoint is, is, is aligned with, I don't believe his viewpoint is, is aligned with mine on that. Um, but I fully, I completely respect um, his viewpoint. And he looks at it from, I'm looking at it from the safety angle, which is, which is more narrow. And I think he, he looks at a lot of big policy things. Um, but he, he's dynamic. I, I mean, you... When we get done with that interview, there's no doubt you're you're going to say we're going to you know we're going to be seeing this guy on a national stage uh, in a very short time as, as we should. He is the type of leader that we need to cultivate into the next generation of leaders to get to Washington. Um, so I'm excited uh, to be working you know with him on a future interview. So that'll be a few weeks out. We, we, we've just I've got some other interviews that'll go before that and um but yeah so and that's gonna be healthy I mean because we're not gonna agree on everything usually the safety docket we bring people in we have a discussion and, and we interview and things like that and, and this one's gonna be a little more um where I've got my positions and and he's got his but at the end of the day I have a a tremendous level of respect for him and am thrilled to have him on the the show and and want um, you know, and I'm going to leave there more informed too, and maybe there'll be some points that I'll be able to convey that might change out how he looks at things, but that's not my, that's not my goal. <laughs> um, I, I just want that healthy, that healthy discussion on that. So, um, and we have, um, M Michelle Gay will be interviewed on the show. Um, and, and that again, will probably be in the next month. Now I, I do have some time I'm going to be um, in Orlando, so probably for about 10 days uh, before too long. And during that time, I won't be doing any interviews. I mean, those will, those will just be more, um, uh, probably where I'll be focusing more on, on the journalism part of, of 
what what makes this show, you know, reviewing some of the, the mainstream media articles, which is very important, I think, and very helpful. Uh, but it won't be during that time, so I kind of have to make sure I, I schedule these things out, you know. So I'm not doing an interview, you know, from next to the, the pool down, in, you know, wherever in Orlando, you know, with my cell phone and a handheld microphone. So, um, but Michelle Gay um, lost her daughter at Sandy Hook um, and at, at the Sandy Hook Massacre. And Michelle and I have been in, in contact, and she um, has, you know, worked to, to um, co-found uh, an organization, is very active in school safety. And Michelle and I, from what I have studied of Michelle, share very similar viewpoints on um, school safety practices. And I want to talk to her specifically about her work in school safety. It's, and, and it's very... Um, it's a very interesting perspective to, you know, one day be a parent of, of a child. And, and when Michelle's daughter, you know, lost her life at Sandy Hook, I had a daughter who was in first grade at that same time, a first grade daughter at the same time, um, who, you know, who now is, is fifth grade. But um, when, you know, suddenly you go from being, you know, being a mother to to evolving into the, this role of, of advocate, and I want to talk to her about about that, and also pose the question with her about the um, very graphic safety uh, drills, the intruder drills, which are becoming more and more prevalent across the country. Again, we just had them nearby where I live. Um, I am not for those. And I have a number of research points and also um, practical points why those don't, it, it, in my opinion, make sense. Um, but uh, it, you, you can accomplish, I believe, the same, the same things with, with tabletop exercises, coming in with, you know, red tennis balls and throwing them at kids and saying you're going to, you know, um, everybody rally at a certain, you know, point and, and you're going to bombard the stack things against the doors, you're going to try to tackle the feet of an intruder and things like that. But, um, you know, you one of the things right away that I ask when people present with those, you know, this is what we're going to do at our school. It's okay. Um, just tell me how you're going to do that at your 4K sites. And nobody does it their 4K sites. Nobody does it. Nobody touches it there. Well, that's your, that's your least hardened target. So, why would you not consider your least hardened target if this is really your 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 protocol? So um, you know, I, I I just think that question comes up. But I want to get I want to get Michelle's take on that. I'm not going to be doing a lot of talking during that interview. Um, I'm going to leave that to to Michelle. And uh, but but this will be one topic that Michelle and I will um, put on the table, and that's you know that are that's these high drama theatrical type drills where you have, you know, a dozen students who are made to look like they've been shot, you know, and they're scattered around the hallway and fake blood is, you know, scattered in the floors and around the floors and the walls and things like that. Um, and, and just really, is that the way that we want to, to be instructing school safety? And also do we want to be giving the message of, you know, the swarm and going after people's feet? You know, one of the, the responses back to that typically is, well, well, at Norris Hall, you know, there were the high school or the college, you know, kids who could have taken Cho on and things like that. Well, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's true, but that's college. That's a whole different environment. And plus, like, if you, I've studied Norris Hall and one of the students, you know, leaped out the window. I mean, Norris Hall wasn't like 15 stories up and, and he left. Um, that was a point where, and you can think of this at any college campus. I mean, I graduated from UW-Madison. There wasn't one time, you know, with my doctoral degree a few years ago, there wasn't one time anybody talked about school safety down there. Um, and, uh, you know, with me in buildings that were easy to access. I mean, not, not only easy to access, I mean, you just open the door and you go in. Um, and then you have wide open commons and, you know, things like that. So, but anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So we do have uh, those interviews, and then next week I will be interviewing um, Dave Hyde. And Dave Hyde is, um, uh, 
I, I work with him as a coworker. He's been blind uh, since birth. Also, uh, Dave is very prominent with the National Federation for the Blind. And he is specifically going to talk about safety as it relates to a person that is blind. So that firsthand knowledge. And he has incredible stories to share uh, with that. And But again, I think there's going to be relatable elements in that discussion with David um, that we'll be able to, to take away um, and again, to foster a greater understanding of, of safety. And we rely so much on our sense of, of sight uh, for safety. And I think David will, will um, open up our minds a little bit to um, an awareness and access to our other senses and then just through some of the experiences that he's had. He's, he's an interesting man. He's, he's a dynamic speaker. So we're looking forward to that. I spoke with him today. And we will be recording, obviously, that next week and then editing, you know, that um, into, you know, into um, podcast, uh, I don't know, 15. It's, inter it's interesting now because, uh, you know, at first, you know, when you do like you're on your third podcast and then my fourth podcast, my fifth podcast. Well, now we're getting up there, you know, in, in the Safety Doc show. And um, somebody had posted to me once. Um, it, it was a veteran podcaster. And I do appreciate, first of all, the podcast community. There were a number of people I went to for um, just suggestions and advice who have been podcasters for six, eight years or whatever and a few hundred podcasts. And, and they immediately offered um, advice on, on different things from equipment to um, how to structure podcasts and so forth. So it's just a really wonderful community. Um, so, you know, it just it, it's been it's been really helpful. But one of the podcasters. Um, that that's very prominent and also um, originally from Wisconsin, you know, said to me, he said, you know, he goes, I, I get a lot of people who do a few podcasts and then they email me and they say, you know, can you listen to these? And then he said, I'd, I'd rather wait till you get like 25 podcasts. And so I will, I'll get there. I'll get 25 and, and then I'll follow up with him and, and let him uh, take a, take a listen at, at those um, if he, if he wants to and give some, give some feedback on those. Um, so, but um, a few things um, uh, I have. So this is a visual, okay? So I'm going to explain this to everybody that's listening. I have a shoe that I am holding up here. Uh, this is a New Balance uh, running shoe. So I do run a lot of nights now, you know, and it's been a little slipper here. Um, and I'm in Wisconsin, and, and we're just kind of edging into the last phase of winter. One of the things I realized as I get older is uh, running um, when it's slippery just is not uh, is not worth it that much. But as soon as is uh, the you know the weather permits, uh, boy, I'm going to be out there and I just absolutely love it. But I, I still get out. But just um, yeah, it's a different thing falling you know when you're when you're 25 versus when you're 45. But here's a, here's a very nice running shoe. Okay, so in New Balance makes nice running shoes. I've got a number of running shoes. This one I've had for a little while. Um, but there's a, a lesson in the shoe that's going to apply to what we're going to talk about today. So I ran with this shoe, um, you know, quite a quite a distance, um, but not for a long time. So maybe, you know, a few times out, I noticed that the shoe. So I'm going to hold it up here. At the top of the shoe, there's there's this lightweight mesh where your where your toes are, and I'm rubbing my fingers across it right now. And one of the things that happens, at least to me is my big, my big toe starts to work through the mesh, okay? And it starts to create a hole. So, um, and this was happening in, in all of my my running shoes. I went online, and guess what? Like, it's a problem. Like, every every runners are like, hey, you know, like, I get so many miles on my shoes. And guess what? The, the big toe, like, pops through. So, and I'm thinking, why? I mean, like, if this is known, why isn't anything done about this? And you can actually buy, like, patch kits and, and things like that. But then, I mean, those have iffy reviews. So I took this shoe to, um, uh, I don't know, a, I will call him a shoe smith, shoe artist, whatever. But uh, his name is Dan. Uh, I'll give a shout-out to Dan because, I mean, he just did such a great job. Uh, Dan in Janesville, located not too far from the former uh, GM plant um, down in Janesville, but I think it's Dan's shoe um, in Janesville, Wisconsin. But anyway, um, I took this to him and I said, here, he, like, I've got like three pairs of running shoes and, you know, they're not cheap. And I have the same deal like going on with all of them. So he looks at it and he says, yeah, 
here's what I'm going to do. He takes a piece of leather, which is um, hard, it's hard to distinguish from the color of the shoe. I mean, it looks great. Like, unless you're absolutely looking at this, you wouldn't even notice this this kind of patch is on. He creates this, this overlay patch and sews it over the end of the toe box. And then, um, you know, basically then the, the problem's gone, okay? You've dealt with it early, the, you've repaired the shoe, you've mended the shoe, and this shoe is going to last then, you know, much longer than it would have otherwise. And actually he did this patch um, back a few months ago. I mean, and, and I've been out and I've used this shoe and, and you can't, you know, it looks great. I mean, there's no, nothing that's worn on it. So, um, but, okay, so that little patch that Dan put on, uh, where he actually cut out, you know, that piece of leather, he sewed it in, you know, it all matched and everything, and, and mended it. Uh, what he did is he restored this otherwise great shoe. He restored this back to um, a, a, very functional shoe that's going to have longevity to do its job, which is to, you know, get me racing around the track and get me racing around the town. So he fixed it. It was the permanent fix once the toe started to work its way through before it got to the point where it couldn't be repaired. So let's let's apply that as we get into um, today, which is going to be crisis response care. So I was... I was trained for, uh, it was three solid days, and I was the only, I believe, civilian in this in this training, and I think I received the training, uh, well, I know why I received the training. I am um, friends with a with a police pastor who was part of this, this training, and they had an, an opening, and I do have a PhD from UW-Madison where I focused in on this stuff, and, um, you know, those type of things all played together in getting me the seat in this, this training. Um, a couple of years ago, but um, I was trained in critical response care, which um, puts me in the role of working then under the sheriff's department. Um, so the sheriff's department will contact me and they will say, you know, David, we had this incident happen, which could be a car accident. Um, it, it could be just an accident someone was involved in. Um, one time it was a, a, a sporting event where a person was involved in, in an accident. Um, you know, it could be a, um, a drowning or something like that that happens. Um, but it, it's some kind of, of traumatic event uh, that first responders, you know, come to. And one of the things, too, is I, I live close to, uh, you know, to the interstate. You know, literally, you know, the interstate kind of cuts right, right through my town. So, um you know, there's, there's always the possibility of, of interstate, you know, accidents. Um, but in my role as a critical incident debriefer, um, when I'm called, I then meet with uh, maybe one or two other critical incident debriefers, and we work as a team. And we then would debrief um, firefighters, EMS, dispatchers, uh, police, other people that would be um, that would have been involved in the response to to that event. Uh, sometimes, you know, medical medical staff. Um, it, it varies, but and this isn't a, a a common. It's not routine, but but sometimes there are just events which are so um, so traumatic and just so unexpected or so rare that uh, there is the call that goes in then from, you know, the police chief or the fire chief or whatever is saying, you know, we, we need to sit down and, and be talked through what people went, went through. And um, those, those are really moving experiences for me. It's a privilege. It's really, those are really hard to, to do, but it's a privilege to do because they're very emotionally, emotionally charged. Um, now, of course, I can't talk about any in, with any type of detail or, or anything like that. But, um, but I'm going to talk you through the steps, the, the key steps. This is not a training, all right? But I want to talk you through the key steps because I think this is important for you to know. It's an important training for you to possibly pursue at your workplace, depending upon what your workplace is, or if something happens that involves, um, you know, you or your coworkers that then you can go to human resources or your superiors and also say, we really feel 
uh, you know, whatever this this event has, has shaken, you know, us and 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 we'd like to access a critical incident briefer. Could you could you work and set that up? Um, and I am going to end by talking about a school experience I had when I was an administrator, when I thought we we really dropped the ball on a on an opportunity to do a crisis debriefing, um, which would have helped our staff and administration. And um, it, it wasn't done. It should have been done. It was a decision above my head uh, to not do this. And and to this day, I still think that was extremely uh, the wrong choice uh, to not to not do that debriefing. So first, one of the things that's happening is we've heard about PTSD. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD, you know, is 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 linked often to you know one-time events, um, but there's another thing that another diagnosis which is out there, which is becoming uh, very prevalent, and it's CSD, cumulative stress disorder, and that means that you have a number of things that add up over time, and eventually they get to the point where they they start to affect your ability to function in your role. So, it, you know, if, if you um, think of responding as an emergency, as an EMT, um, it could be that, you know, it's just over time, the number of responses that you've had, each of those degrades you a little bit, or you're not bouncing back as quickly, you're not reflecting and resetting, I guess. That's, that's CSD. And we're seeing a frequency of things happen. And I've, saw, I've seen this in school administrators, you know, cumulative stress disorder and school staff where um, kids become, you know, violent or, or, or kids with various mental um, health conditions, sometimes autism. And, and it can really be disruptive to students and staff. Um, and then what doesn't happen is this kind of critical instant debriefing to bring people back to a baseline and help people reset. So then they, they can reestablish kind of that restorative, that circle process, reestablish the community and move forward. Not saying you're not going to have another event, but it's kind of like the shoe. You deal with the shoe when you have the small hole in the front of the shoe. You deal with it then and you have your, your process to, to patch and, and to, to firm it up. Um, so debriefing helps us to understand and recognize what we're feeling. And the first thing is to tell people, this is very true. I mean, if you've been, you know, if you've gone through something, you're, it's a car accident, a tornado wipes out your house or whatever, and, and you meet with someone who's just gone through that, and, and they're panicky and they're very worried, a few things is one is to say, hey, you know, what you're feeling is very normal, very typical for someone that has gone through what you've gone through to validate. And it's very true. That's, that's completely true to say that. The other one is to be completely honest. So, um, you know, if someone had a house burned down and, and a pet had perished in it, it's not that you're saying, well, maybe they got out, you know, the pet got out and they ran to a neighbor's or their whatever. It's in that case, it's to be very honest with the facts that you, that you know, um, you know, like it's no, it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, that person, that, that dog perished or um, if it is a, if, and it's typically not my role when I come in and instant to debriefing, but um, I have, uh, you know, observed, um, you know, where a, a police officer has, has, you know, very distinctly if someone, um, you know, has, has passed away to say, you know, this person has passed. I mean, they, they are deceased. I mean, to be very direct with that. And, and that is, that is the right thing to do. Um, but, we have two types of, of distress. I might have talked about this before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we have moral distress and we have psychological distress. So psychological um, uh, distress is more common. So psychological distress, and, and I'm going to frame this again in my context more of a school. So psychological distress could be you have a student who all of a sudden starts to throw chairs. I mean, it could be an elementary student. I mean, I'm going to go through an experience reliving experience I went through here, um, throws chairs, you know, the kids are evacuated from the classroom, is damaging property, is writing on the walls with markers, is swearing, is doing whatever. Um, and that's very, that, that's psychological distress because you don't know what to do to bring that student down. 
um, to, to you're concerned about your own safety. It's just it's, that's not an expectation of how that day is going to go. That's psychological stress. There's another part. This is moral distress. You don't see this as much in schools, okay? But I, I've worked with this as a county debriefer, and moral distress involves um, uh, involves suicide in, in in a lot of cases. And moral distress then is um, so it's it's when harm has occurred to something that we consider as an objective good value, such as like the outdoors. So somebody takes their life, and we know this from how like lost persons and searching for lost persons are usually found close to trails and things like that. And if they are, they have taken their life. That's usually um, they've done that somewhere where they presume that they're going to be found. But um, but moral distress is very, very difficult to deal with because people will ask questions. And I've been in the briefings and when people ask questions, firefighters, and I remember questions that where firefighters have asked, why would somebody do this? Um, I, I take my kids to that park and now every time I go to that park, I'm going to be thinking about this. Um, why would somebody do this in a place that other people come to enjoy or why would why would they they do this to put this kind of permanent marker onto this this location um and it's it's a reminder that that's not really that's not their intent their intent isn't to take this this beautiful place and to degrade it it's they felt this this connection to this place and you know they're not thinking about you respond the responders sometimes take this personally too um of, you know, I had to be the first on the scene and, and to witness this and so forth and say, you know, they, they, they weren't thinking of you when they did the same, no idea who you were. You would, um, but th this was a, this was a location that, that made them feel comfortable in, in, in th where their transition from life to death would happen. Um, not that that's all logical, but, but anyway, uh, but moral distress it, it is what keeps people up at, at night. Um, and it does happen in schools too. I mean, where you can have a student who takes their own life. I know we do, I mean, we have suicides in school. And, and, and the question that comes up most, if I'm involved in a debriefing, the question that comes up most um, is you'll have an emergency responder and they'll say, what if that person changed their mind like right before, you know, they, they, committed the, they completed the suicide, you know, um, what if they wanted to, to undo, you know, if, if it was a hanging or something like that. I know this is a little bit graphic, but, but those are the type of thoughts then. And, and it's really, you, you have to prepare yourself for that and, and say, you know, once the person has experienced a lot of pain, I mean, and once they, they've already come to that point, that decision has been, been made, you know, already for them. And, um, you know, they, they, they've made that decision. They've, they, they've made that commitment. It's, it's, it is as scary, as frightening as it is. Um, you know, it, it, you have to realize that, you know, they were not acting, you know, with rational judgment when they, they did that. It was just depression and, and so overwhelming for them. But that's really the, the question. And, and you, you see that anger come up in people. Um, of, of the moral distress. So moral distress and psychological stress, two different things. So I, I'm going to talk you through what it looks like to do a, a critical instant debriefing. Now these can last anywhere from two hours to sometimes four, five, six hours or more. Um, so imagine like you have a circle of, of chairs and a couple of facilitators. So let's say I'm facilitating this. So I'm going, so, so let's say you have like 15 people. Some of them are firefighters that responded. Um, and, and some of them are, are EMS, a couple of the medical, maybe from the emergency room, um, dispatcher, police, whatever. Um, people at, you know, at the, at the scene where, where this might have occurred, you know, if, it's, if they're working at that location or something, something happened at a, at a work site or something like that, whatever it could be. But you introduce everybody, it, and you have, the, you have the, the tissues around, definitely because it's very emotional. You, you have int, in, introduced everybody. Who are you and what was your role that day? Okay. Um, you go through. The second part, and, and I'm telling you this because you can go in and get critical instance stress uh, training for, uh, again, I'm talking more probably to school people in this, in this 
where you can have your a school team trained in this. Um, so go in, and I'm giving you the pieces, but then go and find these these trainings, these critical instance stress debriefing trainings, um, and and they're out there. So you just have to search you, you search for them. So this is not a training. These are some of the high points, the main points of the training, and, and take it from there. So you do that. The second one is fact gathering. Say okay, and I'm I don't talk a lot. I facilitate. I need to be quiet. Okay. And say and it's a fact gathering. Um, so so what happened? Um, and and start working people through a timeline. You know, what was who was the first one there? And some you know dispatch might say I got this this call and and then this and then someone else might say you know like um, I was I was the first one and then this other person we were the first two to you know leave the the firehouse to the, to the scene and. And, and things will, will, you just let people talk and of what actually happens. And um, then as people go through that, you start, you, you ask additional feeling uh, questions of like, what, what were you feeling, you know, when you came upon that site? And sometimes people say like, I, we didn't know what to expect. Like we just, we just heard it was, um, you know, a, a person that was missing from a boat. We didn't, you know, you, you presume it could be a drowning, but you don't know that for sure. Sometimes people, sometimes there's boats which just get anchored out somewhere, and someone goes into another boat and they go somewhere and whatever. So we don't we don't really know. Um, and you know what what were you thinking, and and you know your your own feelings, and then um, you you work through that with with people. People talk people talk about that, and once they they hear also how other people have responded, I think it's a, it's a big plus. So I want to birdwalk this at the same time over to like schools. So imagine if this happens in the school where you have this elementary student who does a significant damage to this, this classroom. In this event, um, it took I was there plus custodians plus other staff. You know, probably seven eight people for maybe three or four hours getting this room just ready at the end of the day so students could come back in this room and get their materials and go home and they would still see that the room was severely damaged by this by this child who then also had to be removed by police and that multiple police and, and that's very visible and people are crying you know even the, the administrator um, is, is behind closed doors is very shaken by this um, because uh, you know, it's just you know, what do you what do you do? Um, and the parents weren't weren't happy with this, and, and they have their phone out and they're recording this, and you know, this is going to be on the news. And oh my goodness, um, you know, all these emotions. But but you know, it's and then what are you know what are the staff and what are the kids feeling? You know, of are they feeling you know safe? Um, and not to blame like the, this 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 child. I mean, I don't. You know, there's a, there's a backstory of, of this child's life and things like like that. But I mean, we see these things happening. I'm teaching a class right now where I get a number of people who share these type of experiences that happen in their schools, and they ask me specifically, like, what do you have any advice? And and I kind of go through this, but it's really, um, you know, there is no specific advice to something for that except the fact that um, schools do not do critical instant debriefing. They expect teachers to go home at night and just deal with this, to have some kind of reflection, whether that be whatever, you know, put your headphones on and, and listen to some relaxing music or go out and do a run or, or whatever it might be, or sit out on a hammock and, or in a hammock or swing or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, they, they don't do this. They don't debrief. And especially with the kids, they don't sit down and get the kids in the classroom and do a debriefing. And this doesn't mean you're doing a debriefing for an hour. I mean, this could be five or, t or ten minutes. And just saying, you know, um, you know, recognizing, okay, you know, that some of you might have felt, them, uh, you know, that the school wasn't safe, or you felt nervous, or what happened if the student would have come into our room, or, or things like that. And, and you acknowledge those types of things, and that those, that, that exist. And you ask, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this down. So then um, each person has their own stress response. So each person deals with this in a different way. And people will say, you know, I went and I called my best friend or I, I went out, yeah, and, and I walked my dog for two hours that night or something like that. Some people might say, hey, I went to the bar, uh, but with a couple other coworkers and we just kind of blew off some steam and stuff like that. You know, it's okay. You know, it's not the healthiest, not if it's a pattern. And, of course, you don't want to drive after you've been drinking. But, but 
you know, you have those things that people will tell you. Um, now, you know, the stress response, the, what you don't want is people to, to come home and then just unload it on their family because there's, there's that radiation effect where, you know, if you're a caregiver or let's say, you know, you're the teacher or the principal and you come up and you're unloading on your family, these things are happening. And I've had this happen myself. I mean, I had a number of situations I was involved in, you know, which were very, um, you know, very similar to this. And then immediately you knew you're going to have to have follow-up meetings the next day and, and you know, possibly advocates involved and upset parents and, you know, um, trying to make sure that, that you know, you, you could help the student plus also help the school recover and things like that. And, and it did take a toll. I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest. It was very hard to deal with. Um, and there were times when, you know, I would, I would, um, I, I just, I, I just would not handle, you know, that, that well. And uh, it was probably the brunt of, of um, you know, that, that frustration, um, which was coming out in um, not taking care of myself, you know, not, not, not getting sleep and, and being, you know, more probably distant with my family and stuff like that. And, and I remember when, when I kind of stepped out of that role um, of, of school administration and dealing with kind of that, that, that a lot of people noticed like right away, <laughs> I said, you know, um, you, you just seem, you just seem calmer, like happier and things like that. And, and I said, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's important. I'm glad I did it. And actually I think if I would have been trained in some of this critical instinct debriefing, it would have given me better tools to, to work with that. Or if we would have had an outside critical instinct debriefer that we could have brought in for some of these events, but, but we didn't, a lot of that was falling on, onto me. But, um, so anyway, but that stress response. And I think it's important for kids too. Of like, what are you going to do? You know, the, this this you know night, um, and you know, are you going to watch a you know watch a movie or you know a, a book? Are you going to play outside or things like that? And, and just things like that to you know to to renormalize the, the the situation. Very very important. And let kids talk. You know, how did you feel? I felt really freaked out. Okay, that's normal. Tell them it's normal when when something's not going right in school. But it. It doesn't mean, though, that, you know, we're not going to work hard to to work again with, with this student and accept the student back into our class and back into our school. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, to convey this is not the way this student wants to present themselves. Unfortunately, this, this happened. Um, and if anything happens, we are going to keep you safe. Um, but acknowledge that and validate that. That's, that goes a long, long way. Um, so yeah, you know, you give you know, uh, give people suggestions on, on things to do, especially if it's staff and students. Sometimes it's just like read a book, you know, just you know, uh, you know, read a book tonight. Maybe listen to some music, talk to some of the other teachers. Now you don't want it, you know, people just going off and, and lingering on things like this. But um, even like a walk is you know something like that. Um, so um, people helping each other. That's another part of this, you know, making sure that you're connected and not, and not isolated. And the, um, there's also the, the referral aspect. I mean, if you, if you feel so that, that somebody is so affected by this that, that they just can't get over it, like they're saying, every time I go to bed, I wake up and I have nightmares about this and whatever. Well, you know, you need to get that person connected to some, some more, you know, professional therapy or professional intervention, you know, through whatever your system is in, in where you're working and doing that. Um, I'm, I'm going to give an example on that. So this, this was a story um, that I was made aware of. So this isn't a firsthand story, but it was um, an ambulance driver. And all of a sudden, um, he loved his job, loved being an EMT ambulance driver. And pretty soon he was finding that in, in this town, which wasn't wasn't that big, but there were certain locations he just would wouldn't drive back past. I mean, he's going to the grocery store or whatever. But there might have been an accident on this corner or something like something like that. Something, um, and it's this memory. So he'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to drive just around that. And pretty soon he became landlocked. That he got so paranoid every time he went out. I don't even know if paranoid is the word, but just so hyper aware and just so many reminders out there that that he literally had a hard time leaving his house. Ended up moving away from his community, um, did go into treatment, um, actually did, did re-enter EMS service, 
Um, and But part of it was he didn't realize what was happening. He didn't have critical instant debriefing, as we're talking about right now, getting people together afterwards and saying, what did you feel, um, and, and talk us through that. And you know what's interesting is a lot of times people leave this kind of um, with a little bit of laughter and a little bit of smile um, just be, be, because that, that indicates a release of emotion. Sometimes people will, will laugh or, or smile and it doesn't fit the context, but what it is indicating to you is it's a release of emotion. Um, so I, I think that is so important. So again, the, the situation that I went through where I think a school district did, did not do what they needed to do. Um, one is I was asked, and, and I was not trained in critical instant debriefing. I was asked um, by by one of my superiors to um, basically work with with the buildings on kind of um, helping them to debrief. They were running into a number of, of um, instances where you know angry parents and things like that. So you know help help people deal with that. I'm like, well, I'm dealing with that too. Okay, so like <laughs> you got to get somebody from the outside in here. I'm not trained in this. Like I I, I don't know. I can listen to people, but I mean, basically, they're just they're they're either going to be very, uh, uh, very much kind of launching, you know, at me just the, the anger of the situation that they're in, or they're I'm just going to see you know de depression. I, I I don't know what to do. I'm not trained in this stuff, so um, that that's an opportunity where you know it needed to be definitely above me that was recognized in saying, you know, go in and, and, and respond to that. Go in and get somebody professional to come in and meet with people at the buildings and say, you know, it's been a, it's been a really, acknowledge it, it's been a really rough fall. Like we've had a lot of, you know, things with students and, and whatever here. How are you feeling? How are you dealing with it? And then if people say, this is what I feel, you know, to validate those experiences, that helps to prevent cumulative stress disorder and also um, PTSD. Again, I'm not giving medical advice at this point, but that is part of what is what is connected into these programs. So again, post-traumatic stress or cumulative stress, stress after event, is a normal reaction in a normal person to an abnormal event. And I think immediately that is extremely important to tell people of, you know, somebody comes in and, and, again, we talk about that kid who, who kind of wipes out that classroom. And, and the teacher comes in and her things are destroyed, like pictures and things like that. And she's just ready to cry. And the principal behind closed doors is, is just ready to put his head down and be like, what else can I do? And um, to tell people, listen, like, that's normal. What you're feeling is normal. It is completely a normal response to what happened because... There is nobody else that could go into this role and have a reaction different than, than what, what you're having. This is a normal reaction. So experience it, understand what it feels like, and now let's move forward from it, okay? Uh, when, you, when you're ready. But what you're experiencing, and once people hear that, they're like, okay, thank you for telling me that. Like, I thought it was just me, or I thought like this is crazy, or I should be able to handle this, or whatever. But we didn't do that in this one situation. We, we didn't do it as a district at all. And, and the resources were there to do it as a district. And it's something that should have been done higher up than me. And it wasn't done. And it was a huge mistake by the district. I'll stand by that to this day. Um, and that made my job very difficult also um, in working with uh, staff that had gone through events like this. And since then, you know, the district... Um, Districts in general have gone with which much more you know, mental health um, services and, and providing those and then also supporting staff and things. But, um, but yeah, it, it was one of those things that, that um, I was affected by it also. And that's one of the things when you when I go through these instant debriefings. So if the fire chief is involved in this or the police chief, like they're part of the debriefing, like you debrief them. Now, if they weren't involved, they don't get to come to it just as, as an outsider. But you're debriefing those people, too, because, like, that impacts them. Um, so, it, again, the chronology of the event. Sometimes these things happen so fast and, and they unfold. And, and it's, say, like, it's a school and it involves, like, one wing of a school. Like, you don't bring everybody in the school to kind of debrief what, what went on, you, the people that were directly impacted. And you establish a, a chronology. 
you can do these things kind of quick. Like you, you tell everybody, you know, that's in this section, you know, the teachers, hey, we're going to get together after school for 20 minutes. And as if, and I would suggest not the principal leading it, the principal's been in this. He or she has experienced this, has the heightened adrenaline. Somebody from district office, somebody from another building or district office has contact that they make out and somebody comes in and they get some of the cursory knowledge. You don't need a lot of the knowledge. Like I don't get a lot of knowledge on the debriefings that I do. I mean, um, but you have somebody that comes in and says, hey, understand this, this, this happened today. And then you go through, tell me what happened and how you're going to take care of yourself tonight. And um, it's very normal to feel what you're feeling, those, those main points and that kind of chronology. And again, reminding, the, st the student didn't want to, the student does not want to act this way. The student wants to have friends and wants to be um, a part of this, the school. And there's a barrier to this, which in this case could be some medical situations, some psychological trauma, whatever, which isn't anything we're probably going to figure out, but just it, this isn't intentional. The student is not targeting you or the school. Um, and and that's another part for this. And that's, that's something to with the debriefing. Um, when I had worked with people who had responded specifically to you, um, if someone had taken their own life, you know, the fact of needing to say that um, person did not think of you as the responder, as as the first or second person responding to them, and and having you know then to 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 see um, to you know to see them. So, um, but I I think it's so <laughs> it's so important. Again, critical incident stress debriefing. You can look um on the the internet there's a number of trainings that are about three days long they do tailor them out for k-12 settings there is a man in wisconsin his name is greg young greg young i don't know all the affiliations um greg is 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 with um he's he's a police chaplain but he is a trainer phenomenal he's actually the person that trained me but actually greg would be able no matter where you are in the country if you search greg young y-o UNG, um, and, and had his name come up, he would be able to connect you in with the organization. Uh, but I think this is critical for schools. And this is, you're having then teachers, and, and these are showing up in legal cases, you're having teachers then who are suffering from cumulative stress disorder, um, and you're having students then who do not have these situations ex explained to them. And you have confidentiality, yeah, definitely to work with, but you can still say, how did you, how did you feel? Like, let's talk through this, you know, get students together in a circle in the morning. Doesn't mean you dwell on it, not like you're spending an hour on it, but you say, how did you feel? And then also validate, okay, yeah, I mean, that, that's a natural, that's a natural feeling. We are going to keep you safe, not that this won't happen again, but if it, we have a plan, um, and, you know, once you let students express that, validate, again, that normalcy to them and how that reaction was and that normalcy to the staff, and that normalcy to the principal. I remember sitting down in this specific case with that principal and having that talk of, you know, this is, it's very normal. Like, I'm like, what you're showing me here in closed doors of, of how this has impacted you, like that impacts me frequently. And that's where, um, if you are in a position of, of administration to access um, someone to come in and to do that training, you need to, you're not training, that critical instant debriefing. You can do it with your own team. I mean, you, you can do it if somebody comes from a different building. It depends on how big your district is. And, and, and they, can, they can come over. It's not like you need this huge team and you need this. this. But, um, but to do that, to do that. Again, we talk about the shoe, patch the shoe when it's got the little hole, because if you wear it again and wear it again and wear it again, pretty, too, pretty soon you've got that big hole, you've got a problem, the shoe is ruined. And, and um, it's the same anecdote, you know, which applies here. So I'm going to wrap that up, um, but, but uh, I want you to really, really take that to heart um, again. And you can have this with a family member too. I mean, somebody who you have an accident in a family or someone's diagnosed with an illness and, and you know, somebody becomes very emotional and all that. And, and what you say, you know, what is it that I say to this person? You say, hey, you're having a very normal, typical reaction to an abnormal event. You know, 
your spouse was just diagnosed with cancer and, and you're freaking out about it, that's a normal response. Listen to the safety doc on the 405media.com. Subscribe at Safety PhD. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me at SoundCloud. It's always a privilege. Thank you.